if you can, close your eyes for a moment. I want you to imagine that you're standing in the world's most beautiful garden, surrounded by the most lush assortment of trees, flowers, plants, grasses, foliage. The very look of the place overwhelms your senses, all the mixtures of the colors, the scents, the freshness, the way the air is thick with all its beauties. You are taking a walk through a particularly dense part of the garden. A narrow, soft underfoot trail leads you through one final stand of trees. Ahead of you, at a slight bend in the trail, opens out a meadow, at the center of which are two trees standing nearly side by side. Both are both incredibly tall and amazingly wide in their canopies. The lowest branches of each hang fruit down to where you can grab it. Yet the topmost branches stretch up, 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 to where their heights are lost in the clouds. These trees feel heavenly to you, both literally and figuratively. The tree on the left is the tree of life. Its fruit guarantees an endless experience of the truest sort of eternal life. If you eat of this, you will actually not ever die. But interestingly, as you look at this tree, the absence of life, death, is not even an actuality to you. You are only aware of existence, perfection, God, life. The tree on the right is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Its fruit will steal your innocence. For yes, you are standing here in perfect alignment with God already. It's not a question of whether you'll choose today to engage with evil or good. No, in this reality, you are not even aware of the reality of good and evil. Even that understanding, that knowledge, is completely presently outside of you. It would take an input to even understand those dueling concepts. So do you have that whole picture firmly in mind? Can you feel the feeling of Eden before the fall? All right, we'll read. It can scarcely be doubted that in reality, the law itself is holy and the commandment is holy, fair, and good. Can it be that something that is intrinsically good could mean death to me? No, what happened was this. Sin, at the touch of the law, was forced to express itself as sin, and that meant death for me. The contact of the law showed the sinful nature of sin. You see, the function of the law the law being an acknowledgement that good and evil were present and a part of our disconnect from God, was to align mankind practically with the perfect perfection of God. The Old Testament law are words of instruction, actions described and commanded whereby the doers or not doers of those actions are personally raising their hearts toward him. As Paul says it, The law itself is holy, 
and the commandment holy, fair, and good. Yet, to a degree, experience of the law is a little bit like you're sneaking back through the gates into Eden and and, in that you're standing again before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But this time, you actually get to examine its various fruits. I, I would say some of them look delicious, maybe even sort of nutritious. And yet when you get closer, you suddenly realize that even their looks can deceive. For example, right next to each other are three, generosity, greed, prudence, who, all three, deal with the righteous, unrighteous, and potentially righteous usages of wealth, possessions, money. Examining them, you can understand the upsides and downsides of all three. Now, what to do? And here's another. At the far side of the tree, hanging low with quite amazing visual richness, are another trio, love, lust, and self-control. As you stand there and look at the choices seemingly involved in this, I would call it spectrum of human desire, human want, human connection, you might become disastrously confused by the choices offered and implied. Friends, you see, uh, the difficulty of a tree of the knowledge of good and evil is our inability ethically to decipher between actions, outcomes, choices, results. Like today, a certain decision might be perfectly right in a good sort of way, but on another day, a similar action under differing conditions might be leaning us over toward evil. And this isn't even taking into account those hidden human, uh, sometimes frightfully broken things that we call motives. So in the midst of seeming multitudes of choices, uncertainties, causes, effects, goods, evils, the law was meant to cut a clear path back to God's perfection. Yet, the heightening of human awareness of its own imperfection more often caused mankind to focus not on God, but back upon its own own broken self. The law, perfect, pointed out our imperfection. So our imperfect selves became further obsessed with themselves. I'll say it this way. It feels easier to, to quit the consideration of the multifaceted fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil And simply to sit down in the shade, live a little while, and then die. Which really, by the way, was the course of all humanity, unfailingly, unendingly, until the arrival of a particular man from Nazareth. But actually, even before we get there, there's more to talk about. In fact, just listen to where Paul is going to take us next. Listen. After all, The law itself is really concerned with the spiritual. It is I who am carnal and have sold my soul to sin. Again, the purpose of the law was to guide the human spirit through the complete confusion of the knowledge of good and evil and to arrive us at the other side, back in the presence of God. It was a return to actually a little bit more like an approximation to the original 
unshameful experience of Eden. But, and Paul cannot overstate his seriousness about us understanding this, and I'll just let you know, I'm jumping ahead to chapter 8, verse 3, to land on Paul's point solidly. The law never succeeded in producing righteousness. The failure was always the weakness of human nature. Verse 14 again. The law itself is concerned with the spiritual. And yet again, the law never succeeded in producing righteousness because it is I who am carnal, meaning fleshly, and have sold my soul to sin, i.e. the failure was always the weakness of human nature. Friends, the great impossibility of the law being our pathway out of sin is that life is dynamic, fluid, filled with nuance, and frankly, filled with other people. The knowledge of good and evil is only simple when one lives in a vacuum. It is completely impossible when one is living in the flesh and in the world. You and I study the fruits of that tree and we find ourselves in overwhelming ethical complexity. That is assuming, of course, that we're intellectually and morally honest enough to give even that moment of consideration. Friends, you and your sin and any external law-based approach that relies on you will always fail to attain to God. In fact, let me say that again. You and your sin and any external law-based approach that relies on you will always fail to attain to God. Which actually brings me, and if you know me well, you know this, is going to bring me to my passion point within this half chapter. That's verses 15 through 25. Over the course of my 40 years of life, I cannot begin to estimate how many times I've heard this passage uh, preached on, referenced in books, casually mentioned in Christian sorts of conversations. And I would say being actually fair and non-exaggerational, that 99 times out of 100, the pastor, writer, or speaker interprets these verses incorrectly. They'll say something like, well, you know us, doing what we don't want to do and not doing what we do want to do, we're just fallen people. Or they'll say something like, as Paul so perfectly reminds us, we will always struggle with the consequences of the fall, willing one thing, yet being undercut by our flesh. Or even worse, I've even heard things like this. Even after we've accepted Jesus, we must remember what Paul says in Romans 7 about our human inability to step totally into the new life. My friends, if you don't hear anything else in this whole particular podcast, I really need you to listen to the words I'm about to say. Romans 7, verses 15 through 25, which describes the fallout of the fall, is a rhetorical device that is talking about everything before Jesus. Paul is not talking about your life now. He's talking about humanity before the redemptive work of our Savior. 
In fact, I'll say it another way. Do not be foolish enough to ever reference this passage ever again as if it has anything to do with your present life in Christ. What I'm about to read is the trap you used to be in. In fact, I would say it this way too. No one should ever be allowed to read the next chapter, Romans 8, until they properly understand that its glories are the result of the end of what I'm about to read. Again, what I'm about to read is a rhetorical device. It's a style of argumentation that paints a picture of a causal event. The causal event in this case was the fall, sin, and a law-based approach to God. Jesus came to end the fall, sin, and that law-based approach to God. So, Our little casual, little uh, mix and match where we interpret these verses as being our present experience of fallenness is a direct repudiation of the purpose and the power of the work of Jesus. My friends, stop talking about these verses in the present tense. Paul is painting a picture of his past struggle for righteousness under the law. And his last line as you'll hear it in just a moment, is really the key to it all. So, anyways, without any further ado or any further crazed Eugene rantings, I'm going to read you this text in its entirety. In the past and as rhetorical setup for chapter 8. Got that? Okay, here we go. In practice, what happens? My own behavior baffles me, for I find myself not doing what I really want to do, but doing what I really loathe. Yet surely if I do things that I really don't want to do, I am admitting that I really agree with the law. But it cannot be said that I am doing them at all. It must be sin that has made its home in my nature. And indeed, I know from experience that the carnal side of my being can scarcely be called the home of good. I often find that I have the will to do good, but not the power. That is, I don't accomplish the good I set out to do, and the evil I don't really want to do, I find I am always doing. Yet if I do things that I don't really want to do, then it is not, I repeat, I who do them, but the sin which has made its home within me. When I come up against the law, I want to do good, but in practice, I do evil. My conscious mind wholeheartedly endorses the law, yet I observe an entirely different principle at work in my nature. This is in continual conflict with my conscious attitude and makes me an unwilling prisoner to the law of sin and death. In my mind, I am God's willing servant, but in my own nature I am bound fast, as I say, to the law of sin and death. It is an agonizing situation, and who on earth can set me free from the clutches of my own sinful nature? I thank God there is a way out through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen. Amen. 